Hello everyone and welcome to Go Forth, a music education talk show. This is Summer. And this is Owen. This week features Dr. Rollo Dilworth speaking about cultural appropriation and culturally responsive teaching. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Go Forth, the music education show based at the Sutterman Conservatory of Music at Gettysburg College. My name is Logan Shippey, and I am proud and honored to present Dr. Rollo Dilworth uh, to our show today. Hello, Dr. Dilworth. How are you? Hello, Logan. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for inviting me to the show. Of course. Many of our listeners who are listening to this show know who you are already. But for those who don't, I'm going to ask you a simple question. What do you do? That's, a, that's actually quite a good question, Logan. I appreciate it. So my current job, I teach at Temple University. I serve as professor of choral music education, where I'm fortunate enough to teach both in the choral department and the music education department. And I also have an administrative role where I serve as vice dean for the Center for the Performing and Cinematic Arts. That's a long title that what that basically means is that I have the opportunity to provide some oversight and guidance for our music program, our dance program, our theater program, and our film and media arts program. Outstanding. Uh, A simple question. I was being a little disingenuous, but someone who is involved in as many things as you may be a little bit more complicated to answer. (laughs) Now, I want to get to know you a little bit more, and I want to ask, when did you start making music? Wow, it's, it's kind of hard to, to remember for sure. I know that I started enjoying music as early as the age of five. Uh, I went to a little elementary school where we sang all the time, all day. I learned my numbers, my parts of speech, how to be a, a good citizen, all through, all through singing. So I've been engaged in music ever since I can remember. I started taking formal piano lessons when I was nine. I started singing formally in the children's choir when I was seven. And I I haven't really looked back since. It's been an amazing journey and I've been fortunate to have great teachers along the way who've encouraged me and who've tried to steer me uh, in a direction that would help me to do what I'm doing today, which is teaching and conducting and composing. Yeah, speaking on conducting and arranging and composing, I believe that you started arranging rather early in your career. Could you talk about how you started arranging and composing? Yeah, sure. I I started arranging and composing pretty much out of curiosity as a little kid. I was a little boy in the children's choir at my school and also at my church. They were, I went to Catholic school, so they were kind of one and the same thing many of the times. And I would bring the music home from rehearsal and sit at the piano and I would start, you know, tinkering away, playing my part. And I would start playing other people's parts. I would start playing the accompaniment. And out of sheer curiosity, Logan, I would start changing the pitches, changing the rhythms, sometimes changing the text mm. and re, rewriting the score, sort of arranging, if you will. That was my first, my, my entry point into the arranging process. And I was just a little bit of a geek of a kid. You know, I would write something out different, a different idea out on, on my manuscript paper and I would take it back to rehearsal to the music teacher and I would hold up the manuscript to her and I would say, can we try it this way? And there were times in which she actually gave me a shot at doing that and really encouraged me. And I wasn't completely sure of what I was doing, but I knew that I was curious. 
And I think it was my curiosity that led me to more in-depth study as I got older about music theory, of course, and the arranging process and the composing process. And I continue to do it to this day, sometimes out of necessity, sometimes out of just pure fun. Yeah, that really speaks to the importance of teachers early in our life. Like imagine an alternate history where your teacher did not encourage you and allow you those opportunities. So when you started arranging and conducting, did you have any inspiration, uh, other composers, arrangers that you listened to? There were quite a few people that I was listening to. I was certainly watching what uh, a lot of the local groups in my town were doing, the local collegiate choirs and high school choirs and community choirs. In particular, I was fascinated by a gentleman named Robert Ray, who is famous for writing a piece called The Gospel Mass that has served as a blueprint for a lot of other arrangers and composers who, who have come after him. And so I got a chance to study with him because he, he was local in, in St. Louis. So he certainly was one of my early influences. I was listening to classical music growing up. I was listening to pop music, rhythm and blues music. I was listening to jazz music. I was listening to country music. So I was, I was really just listening to all kinds of music and found myself being influenced by a lot of different styles along the way. So you've talked about your path as coming up as a composer and arranger. Do you have any advice on younger people who want to get into that field? Sure. I think that it's really important as you grow and develop as a composer to study music theory. I think that is extremely important. Even if you have a, you know, sort of instincts that sort of move you through the compositional process, it's important for you to know what it is you're writing. I think it's very critical that if you're going to be a, a composer that you play piano, get those chops going, because that will that skill alone will allow you to put multiple voices together and hear what those those sonorities are like when they come together. I think it's important to study music history from a compositional through a compositional lens have a knowledge of what was going on in every single style period and who the prominent composers were and what is it about their particular style or their of writing or their particular compositional technique that made people enjoy their music and respect their music. And through that study and through understanding what these composers did before, you know, we came uh, into being, will greatly inform and have an impact on us as we develop our own particular voice as, as composers and as arrangers. That's all great advice, and I should start working on the piano right now. Uh, <laughs> Go to it, yes. Yeah. I'm going to switch a uh, slightly topic uh, to something that I believe would concern a lot of music educators going out into the field. Um, when it comes to arranging and composing and performing practices, which is cultural appropriation. It seems like there are some blurred lines between what is acceptable and objectionable in terms of cultural appropriation. And I was wondering if you had any perspectives that could help guide young teachers in navigating those blurred lines. Yeah, thank you, Logan, for that question. Certainly cultural appropriation has been a hot topic for quite a bit of time. And particularly in music education, uh, we are, are being faced with 
all sorts of opportunities to have these kinds of discussions. I'll refer you to a book by James Young, James O. Young, called Cultural Appropriation and the Arts. It's a very good book, and it, it helps us to look very carefully at the different kinds of cultural appropriation that exist out there. But the upshot of it is James Young, and also Richard Rogers, not of the, the musical theater fame, but Richard Rogers is another scholar out there on cultural appropriation. And both of them tend to agree that cultural appropriation is ubiquitous. It is everywhere and it happens all the time. And I think that many people assume that once you use the word cultural appropriation, that it is suddenly a bad thing and that, you know, someone should pay the price for committing an act of cultural appropriation. The fact of the matter is that cultural appropriation can, can occur in a very respectful manner that we sometimes dub cultural appreciation. And cultural appropriation can occur in a very profoundly offensive manner. And that could be what James Young considers cultural appropriation as theft or cultural appropriation as offense. What I will say sort of in short to, to music educators out there is that if you want to avoid or mitigate the, the possibility of an act of cultural appropriation being offensive, you must do your homework. You must do everything you can to understand the history, the culture, the performance practice, the background of any music that you, you choose to study, particularly music that represents cultures outside of your normal level of understanding or outside of your everyday interactions. I think that it is critical to ensure that the same amount of study that you would give to, let's say, Bach and to Haydn and to Handel, you must do that with a piece of, we will say, a piece of cultural music, even though all music is cultural, but a piece of cultural music or a piece of music that represents a culture beyond the Western European culture. I think that cultural appropriation, offensive cultural appropriation happens when an ensemble, we'll, be, we'll talk about music education, when an ensemble demonstrates a lack of understanding and respect for a cultural tradition. And it will show up. It will show up in the way the words are pronounced. It will show up in the way the choir moves or doesn't move. It will show up in the way the, the director conducts the choir or ensemble. It will show up. And I think that cultural appropriation is something that happens all the time. And we should not be afraid of it, but we must make sure that when we endeavor to take on a set of behaviors that are specific to a culture other than our own, that, that is cultural appropriation. When we endeavor to do so, we must do so with respect. If necessary, we must do so with permission. And we must do so uh, in a way that allows us to be vulnerable and for us as the educators to be the learners and not present ourselves as being the experts. So that, that's a little bit of advice for music educators. And not to be afraid of it. Do not use the idea or the, the notion of cultural appropriation as an excuse for not endeavoring to, to perform or study a certain kind of music. Oh, I'm not going to do that because my choir 
they will, my choir members will accuse me or my audience will accuse me of, culture, of, of committing cultural appropriation. I think it's the music educator's job to educate the singers on what cultural appropriation is and is not. And it's their job to educate their audiences and other stakeholders on what cultural appropriation is and is not. And I assure you, everything will be okay because we all culturally appropriate. We all do it. Think about earrings. How many people wear earrings? Lots of people. Well, you know, earrings actually have their, their origins in North Africa, Egypt, or and, and parts of Persia, what used to be Persia, South Asia. And earrings originated with those cultures. So anybody who's not Persian or Egyptian is, is committing cultural appropriation. Are they doing it to offend people? Of course not. It's just a part of, of what we do now because it's a part of our culture. And so... So the question should not be, is something culturally, are we committing an act of cultural appropriation or not? Because more often you are than not. The question should be, is the act of cultural appropriation acceptable or offensive? Thank you so much for that excellent answer. Oh my gosh. Personal experience. I've definitely felt fear of cultural appropriation just because of the stigma that word has. And I'm so glad that you touched on that. It's not necessarily like the devil incarnate is, is, is possessing you <laughs> when mm -hmm. it's happening. Right. Yeah. It's about intention. Yeah. It's about intention. Mm -hmm. And if the intention is just to check a box and say, oh, it's Black History Month. We're going to do this spiritual. Then that's offensive, but if there is a if there's a solid commitment to programming music of diverse composers for the experience of your students learning historical and cultural concepts as it relates to the music, and you want your students to have a better understanding of not only who they are, but who other people are that don't look like them, and give them an opportunity to engage difference and give them an opportunity to really more deeply explore the traditions surrounding that music, then that's, that's not cultural appropriation. That's doing your job as a music educator. That's doing your homework. That's right. <laughs> you got it. You got it. So thank you so much. I'm going to finish up the interview with a simple question that might have a complicated answer, just okay. like I started. What are you working on going forward? That's a very good question. For many years of my career, I have I've dedicated the bulk of my co compositional and arranging output to music that points us toward principles of social justice and social change. All African-American spirituals fall into that category. Some gospel pieces fall in that category, but many of the pieces that I've been working on over the last several years focus on the writings of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Maya Angelou, James Baldwin, and Langston Hughes. And so that's what I continue to do. I just finished setting a Maya Angelou piece and I'm moving on to some more contemporary uh, poets that are out there. And I've got some commissions that connect with, with those works. And that's what I'm going to continue to do. And I'm spending quite a bit of time these days on the, the lecture circuit, since I can't get on an airplane and travel anywhere. And talking to choral organizations in particular, but sometimes talking to music schools and talking to other arts organizations about social justice and social change and the principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion and how 
those principles can and perhaps should be alive and well in our strategic planning, in our institutional identities, and in ultimately in the artistic endeavors that, that we choose for performance and, and for study. So that's, that's what I'm up to these days, and I'm enjoying it. Well, that's very exciting, and I'm glad you're enjoying it. Thank you so much for coming and indulging me. <laughs> and Dr. Talbot, I suppose he's pointing to him. So. Uh, well, well, thanks to both of you. It's, it's, a, it's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this week's Poppy Talk with Dr. Rollo Dilworth. To listen to an extended version featuring our own students discussing effective practicing in the Wind Symphony, as well as inclusivity in the classroom, check us out wherever you listen to podcasts at Go Forth, a music education talk show. Join us next week for an interview with Dr. Elizabeth Parker speaking about musical identity and her own research. We hope to see you then, but until next time, go forth and change the world.